The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray. As David prayed just a few moments ago, Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'll open our eyes and our minds to see how your spirit takes your word and implants it deep in our souls this morning. So help me or get me out of the way, but Lord, would you exalt Christ here? Would you make much of him, Father? Would you exalt your word and speak to us now through it? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Start with a little personal testimony. It was late 1979 when I gave my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know if your experience was like this, but the Bible radically changed for me after that. Before that, through my high school years and on into my first couple years of college, I just I basically never read the Bible. A couple times I tried to read it. I wasn't I was raised in a nominally Christian home going to a a liberal mainline church that did not preach the gospel, so I didn't have really any understanding of the gospel. And mostly the Bibles in our home sat on the shelf collecting dust. But everything changed for me on that November day in 1979. And almost overnight, I had an unquenchable thirst for the scriptures. And what was once dull and boring popped with life. And the words pierced my heart. They convicted me of sin and wrong attitudes. They spoke of the glory of Christ and his radical otherworldly kingdom. The words of the psalmist that David just mentioned a few moments ago became true for me. Speaking of God's words, it says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I just couldn't get enough. And while some of this might be chalked up to the, the excitement of a new convert, it pretty much continues to this day. I still find the scriptures life-giving and powerful. Now, what made that difference? What made that difference? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Each year, we begin the year with four messages covering the word, prayer, Sanctity of Life, and Ethnic Harmony. And it's my joy to tackle the subject of the Bible. But this also dovetails nicely with what Nathan preached about last week on the work of the Holy Spirit in this time of waiting between the first and second comings of Christ. So we're kind of blending our New Year emphasis on the Word and prayer with a mini-series on the Holy Spirit. So here's what our focus is going to be today. This is the main point, the takeaway, if you will. The ultimate aim of reading your Bible is to see and enjoy the glory of Christ and be transformed into his image. And the Holy Spirit is essential to that aim. Let me say that again. The ultimate aim of reading your Bible is to see and enjoy the glory of Christ and be transformed into his image. And the Holy Spirit is essential to that aim. So if you hope to get anything out of your time in the Word this year, 
You must cooperate with the Holy Spirit by actively, prayerfully reading and studying and applying God's Word. All right, let's start in this passage by kind of getting our bearings of how this fits into the broader context of 1 Corinthians and what Paul is talking about here in these first couple chapters. Now, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you know there were a lot of problems in that church. One of the ones that Paul is dealing with right here at the beginning of the book is the problem of, of divisions. Divisions over, believe it or not, superstar preachers. So some are boasting that they're following Paul, and others are following Apollos, and still others, Peter. And you can see that over in chapter 1, verse 12. Now, this isn't really hard for us to relate to, is it? We tend to do the same thing today. The world has its movie stars and its pop stars, and we have our superstar preachers, our megachurch pastors. Well, Paul explodes all of that kind of divisive thinking in chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. He says it's not about how smart or eloquent the preacher is, because the wisdom of God can't be known or understood the way mere human wisdom can. But God says that his foolishness, this is amazing to me, his foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of men. And God's wisdom doesn't come by eloquent human speech. It comes through weak and foolish things, at least weak and foolish from the world's standpoint, so that Jesus Christ is the one boasted in and not anyone else. All right, so I want to ask three questions of this text then. Number one, what is this wisdom of God? What is Paul talking about when he uses that phrase? Number two, how is it revealed? And number three, how can we know it? So I'm going to try to answer those three questions from this text with the aim of encouraging you to read your Bible supernaturally because you have already been equipped to do just that. Believe it or not. All right, question number one. What is God's wisdom? What is this wisdom of God Paul talks about? In verses 6 through 8, Paul contrasts two kinds of wisdom. Let's read it together. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now notice the contrast here between these two kinds of wisdom. He calls one the wisdom of this age, and the other he calls the wisdom of God. They're different in their content. So the wisdom of, it, of this age is a wisdom that's doomed to pass away along with the rulers of this age that buy into it. Now, who are the rulers of this age? Who's he talking about there? Well, commentators have some differing opinions, but I think it's, it's just talking about the, the, what we would call the elite. We tend to call them the elite, the, the educated, the academic world, the political leaders, the social leaders, the religious leaders, okay? The wisdom of this age is what they buy into, and that's all passing away along with them. But the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God is of different nature and content. So first, we learn that it's a secret. 
and hidden wisdom. Here the, the word hidden is, is the translation of the Greek word mysterion, which we normally translate in the New Testament, mystery. And like all New, Te- New Testament uses of that word, it refers to something that was formerly hidden but is now revealed. So it's not something that we can't find out. It's been formerly hidden but now revealed. It's only a mystery to those who don't get it, namely the rulers of this age. Secondly, notice in verse 7 that we also see that the wisdom of God has something that's been decreed by him from before the ages, which means it's an eternal wisdom. It extends from eternity past all the way to eternity future. It's a wisdom grounded in the plans and purposes of God before he even created the universe and will go on into eternity. And it isn't altered by the varying opinions of scholars or scientists or politicians or talking heads on TV. The wisdom of this world, remember, is passing away. It's not permanent. It's changing all the time. Haven't we seen that with COVID and all the recommendations regarding COVID changing all the time? But the wisdom of God doesn't do that. Notice also in verse 7, it's a wisdom that's for our glory, which means It's good news for us. It's good news for us. God is not only after his own glory, but we get to share in that glory and to reflect it back to him. Jesus prayed for this in John 17, 22. He said, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, meaning his disciples, that they may be one even as we are one. So God the Father gives his glory to Jesus, and Jesus shares it with us. Now, we don't see the fullness of that yet, but we will one day. And then finally, in verse 9, Paul finishes this contrast with a lofty and poetic version of the Christian's future destiny. And a lot of us have memorized this verse. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. God will glorify himself by preparing an unimaginably beautiful and glorious future for us. And I think that obviously includes the new heavens and the new earth. Paul is just reiterating the promise that Jesus made to us in John 14, 3, when he said this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, same preparing, here's that theme of preparing there. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. All right, so if we put all this together, it becomes pretty evident, I think, that the wisdom of God, what what Paul is talking about with that phrase, is nothing less than the gospel of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. It's been decreed by God before the ages. It's for our glory It's about all that God has prepared for those who love him. But listen, it's not just a simple gospel about his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. It's all that flows out from that as well. Our growth and maturing, what we call sanctification, and ultimately our glorification. All the promises that God has made, everything that flows out from the gospel is part of this wisdom of God. So we could say that it's the whole eternal plan of redemption from before creation on through to consummation. 
So that's what the wisdom of God is. Now let's look at our second question. How is that wisdom revealed? How does God reveal that? Well, we see that in verses 10 to 13. So let's try to follow Paul's logic here because I think here we have the central thought of this whole passage and the main point that I want to convey in this message. And that is the connection between the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and you and me. Well, Paul tells us that this wisdom of God has been revealed to us through the Spirit in verse 10. And he grounds this in two statements that reflect a principle that we'll call like is known by like. Is what he says. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the only one who really knows the thoughts of God is the Spirit of God. It's just like a relationship between you and me, okay? No, but you don't know my thoughts, my hidden motivations. I don't know your thoughts and hidden... I'm not a mind reader. None of us are. So we can't really know what's going on inside each other. Only you know that. Only the spirit of a person knows what's really going on inside that person. And in the same way, the spirit of God knows what the mind of God is. So if there's going to be any hope of us understanding this revelation, we need the Holy Spirit. So that leads us to the next step in Paul's logic. He says in verse 12, first half, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So Paul tells us that we have the spirit dwelling in us. He makes it clear that this is not the spirit of the world. We've received the spirit of God, the one who knows the very depths of God. And he's been given to us for a purpose. That purpose is in the second half of verse 12. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. The purpose of you having the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Why Jesus promised that spirit and has given it to you is so that you might understand the things that God has given us. All right, so our Father does not want his children to be ignorant of all that's theirs in Christ, nor of all that he commands us to do, nor of all the promises he's made to us. Now, this isn't the only reason that God gives us his spirit, but it's one of the most important ones. Paul continues his argument in verse 13 by telling us that he and his fellow apostles have imparted And that word literally is spoken. A lot of other English translations translate that as spoken. I actually like that better than the ESV because it brings through the idea that God communicates what he's saying through words, through words. And he contrasts words of human wisdom with words taught by the Spirit. So this is what he says. We impart or speak this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. What he's preached, what Paul has preached, are specifically spiritual words. Words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Words that were given to him by the Spirit and then taught to the Corinthians and through the, right, Paul, the fact that Paul wrote that down to us by the Spirit. So I think this is another evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. 
What God communicates, he communicates through words, words of human language. That's an amazing condescension that God communicates with us, finite little creatures, through language we can understand. But the Spirit so breathes on those words that even though Paul is writing them or Peter or whoever the writer of Scripture is, they are communicating accurately the truth of God, what, ex- what he exactly wants communicated. Well, the Spirit is necessary on the speaking end, but he's also necessary on the hearing end. And I think that's what Paul means by the last phrase in verse 13. He says this, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, if you, you go and look at a transliteration, if you will, a, a literal rendering of that in English from the Greek, it, it kind of doesn't make much sense. It's a difficult and confusing phrase, but I think the ESV gets it pretty close here. What, he, what he's saying is the Spirit takes Paul's words, which contain spiritual truth, and interprets them to spiritual people. And we'll see in a moment what he means by that phrase, spiritual people. In other words, the Spirit is essential on both the speaking and the receiving side of communicating God's truth in order for us to understand what God is saying. The Spirit makes the lights go on for us. That's really what Paul is saying here. So I don't know, kids, if, if you've had this experience Maybe back, and, and most of us adults too, maybe back when you were taking math class, that's the thing that came to my mind. You're taking, you're taking math and, you, and you, you're having a real hard uh, time with a concept like fractions or algebraic equations. Anybody struggle with that stuff? Geometry, <laughs> right? Um, and you're just not getting it. But then a teacher comes along and maybe your teacher comes and explains it a little different way or maybe a tutor or maybe, you know, heaven forbid your parents explain it a different way. Suddenly it makes sense. You get the concept. And from then on, you can do fractions with no problem or you can solve algebraic equations with no problem because you understand the concept. The lights went on. The lights went on. So we've all kind of had that experience in other things. Well, that's what the Spirit does with the Bible. So that's, that leads us to our final question. So how does the Spirit reveal Scripture? By causing the lights to go on. The last question I asked was, how can we then know it? So the Spirit gives us the truth. The Spirit indwells us so we can understand it, how do we then come to know it? If we've correctly understood the last phrase in verse 13, then the answer, I think, to this question is simple. Be a spiritual person. Be a spiritual person. If the Spirit reveals spiritual truths to spiritual people, you've got to be a spiritual person. Paul says... Uh, Well, that's what Paul implies in verses 14 to 16, but he does it in an interesting way. He draws a contrast between a natural person and a spiritual person. And he deals with the natural first. Let's take a look at that. Verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
So the natural person is simply a person who does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Why? Because it seems like foolishness or folly to them. It seems ridiculous. But notice something else. They cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They cannot understand them. So the first half of the sentence, Paul tells us that these natural people, without the Spirit, they won't receive it. They don't receive it. They stiff-arm it. Okay, that's kind of the image, I think, that's going on there. They're stiff-arming the truth of God. So it's a volitional thing. They don't want it. But the second half of the, of the verse digs deeper into the hearts and says they cannot understand it. They cannot This is an inability thing. So volitionally, they don't want it. And within their spirits, they are unable, unable to discern these things. So a person who who doesn't have the Holy Spirit just simply cannot understand the things the Spirit is trying to communicate. They might study the Bible and even understand it at an intellectual level, but they don't get it at the heart level. And oh, how many there are in that category. Some of them are teaching at seminaries and Bible colleges. And some of you are sitting in this room right now. And you understand these things. You understand the gospel. You understand some of these truths on an intellectual level. But it just seems like a lot of religious foolishness to you. You're not interested. You're, you're thinking more about the Vikings-Packers game tonight. Your mind is elsewhere. You just don't get what all the fuss is about. In contrast to that, Paul talks about the spiritual person in verse 15. Let's read that. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So a spiritual person isn't somebody who's been caught up into some third heaven experience or had some incredible vision or revelation. A spiritual person is simply one who has the Holy Spirit. And having the Spirit means that they're able to discern. Now it says judge, but that word judge is the same Greek word that is translated discern at the end of verse 14. They're able to discern all things. What does that mean? All things. You can discern all things. It doesn't mean that having the Spirit makes you an expert in everything. I wish it did, but it doesn't. It means that We as Christians see things through the lens of the word. And we bring everything we see in the world to the test of scripture. We see everything through the lens of scripture. It's what we would commonly call a biblical worldview. Now, what does it mean when he goes on and says that the spiritual person is judged or discerned by no one? Well, commentators have a lot of different views on that. But I think it simply means that the spiritual, to, to the spiritual person, the word of God gives them a way to rightly judge or discern all the philosophies and ideologies that we see out there in the world today. We are equipped to do that. The Spirit, the spirit gives us an understanding through the word of how to see that. But... Those same worldly philosophies and ideologies and the people who hold them 
cannot rightly judge us. Because they don't get where we're coming from. You ever have that feeling that your unsaved relatives or neighbors, they don't get you. And they ought not to, because you're from a different kingdom. You're from a different world, right? So the Apostle John puts it like this in, in 1 John 3, 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The reason they don't get us is because they don't get Jesus. All right, Paul concludes this section by quoting Isaiah 40, verse 13. He says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to, him, so as to instruct him? Now, that's a rhetorical question, the way Isaiah words it. And the presumed answer is, what? Who's understood the mind of the Lord? No one. No one. But Paul answers Isaiah's question a little differently. I think it's a stunning statement. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Uh, We can know that because we have the mind of Christ who is God. Remember that the Spirit is the one who knows the mind of Christ. And so if we have the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. You do. You really, really do. Believe it or not. So the question is this. It's not do you have the mind of Christ, but do you use the mind of Christ? Do you use it? We can actually develop that. We can develop the mind of Christ within ourselves by saturating our minds with this book. That's what this book is for. That's why God gives it to us in tangible written form. I like that David had us hold it while he prayed. So here's the logical sequence. Let's kind of pull our three questions together. Here's the logical sequence. God reveals the wisdom of his eternal plan through the Spirit... The Spirit does this through words spoken by Paul and the apostles and other writers of Scripture, which they wrote down and which we have in the form of the Bible. The Spirit also indwells us as believers, and therefore we have the mind of Christ and are able to understand and discern these things. That's the logic of the passage. Does Does that make sense? Does that make sense what Paul is doing here? All right, I have one final question then. How does that relate to my Bible reading, to your Bible reading? So maybe some of you have committed to read through the Bible this year or to get into the men's Bible study or however you're going to be taking in the Word of God this year. I just want to make four points by way of application. First, I want to make it abundantly clear that if you are a Christian and you're trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, I make that point again. I know I've said it several times through the message so far. I make that point again because there are many who have tried to use this very passage to teach that there are kind of two levels of Christianity. There's a fleshly, carnal kind of Christian And you need to graduate from that to this kind of super spiritual kind of Christian. So some 
People teach that you need to do this through a baptism of the Holy Spirit or entire sanctification or some kind of second experience of grace in your life after conversion. I just want to warn you against that kind of teaching. Let me just point, point out to you how Paul addresses these Corinthians. Now, I mentioned at the beginning how messed up the Corinthians were. So they're divided not just about the preachers they follow, but about spiritual gifts, about divorce and remarriage. They're divided about suing each other. They're, they're divided about tons of stuff if you read that book. They're just generally behaving badly. But listen to what Paul says in chapter 3, the very next chapter, and verse 16. He says this to them. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He asks it like they're obviously supposed to know. The answer is yes. I, I, I know that. This is like Christianity 101. Don't you get it? God's spirit is within you. He says the very same thing again in chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He's speaking this of these messed up Corinthian believers. Then over in chapter 12, verse 3, he says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So it's not even possible for you to call Jesus Lord and mean it unless the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And finally, in verse 13 of chapter 12, he says again, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul says it in several different ways that if you're born again, you have the spirit. Now, of course... Having the Spirit and walking by the Spirit are two different things. And that's why Paul can turn around in the next chapter and call these Corinthians people of the flesh. (laughs) In Galatians 5.25, he exhorts the Galatians like this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit or walk by the Spirit. Which implies to me that believers can live out of step with the Spirit at times. But... He's not teaching that there are two levels of Christianity. So I just want to exhort you in that, encourage you not to buy into that kind of teaching because it causes all kinds of spiritual trouble for people. So, believer, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are already equipped with what you need to understand all that God wants you to understand and live this Christian life. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Okay, second point by way of application. Reading the Bible is a supernatural act. (coughs) Excuse me. When you're reading your Bible, you're reading words that the Spirit inspired to be written. And that same Spirit dwells in you so that you're able to discern what he's saying. So hearing the Spirit doesn't come by entering some trance-like state in meditation, by reciting incantations over and over. Rather, the Holy Spirit takes the words that he inspired in this book and he illumines them in our minds and implants them in our hearts in such a way that we want to believe and obey them. He changes our wanting. And suddenly the Bible isn't boring, it's alive. And Jesus Christ is seen and savored as the wonderful, loving, glorious Savior and Lord that he is. And we... 
find pleasure in learning more about him and in fellowshipping with others who know him and in obeying his commands. And our glorious future inheritance that he talks about that God is preparing for us is no longer just kind of a vague pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die thing, but he's preparing a place where we will be in his presence forever and enjoy him in the glories of his love and in the new creation that he'll have made for us. And that's all from this book. It's the spirit that makes Christ glorious as we read. It's the spirit that takes mere knowledge of things about Christ and moves him from the head down to the heart. It's the spirit that uses this book to transform your life. Now, it's at this point that questions about feelings and impressions usually come up. Do we follow them? They're real. I acknowledge their existence. There is a subjective side to the Christian faith. But you can't be governed by those things. You need to be governed by solid, objective reality of God's truth. You want to be developing your ability to think with the mind of Christ. And that means you have to be in the word. Because we don't follow feelings and impressions that are untethered from anything solid to anchor them to. That leads me to my third application. The supernatural nature of understanding scripture does not mean we don't have to think and study hard. Bible, Bible never tells us to turn off our minds in order to, to spiritually discern things. In fact, it tells us the opposite. We read from 2 Timothy 2.7. Paul tells Timothy, Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Did you catch the relationship there between thinking and understanding? Between our thinking and the Lord's giving understanding? We do the thinking. He gives the understanding. If we don't think, he won't give understanding. So, reading has to, at some point, move beyond just scanning your eyes over words on the page... We have to dig deep, and that means developing some Bible study skills. And I'm glad you asked, because we offer help with that. (laughs) We offer help with that. That's why we offer classes that can train you to do that. So don't neglect it when those opportunities come along. you got to learn some skills and how to accurately do that. Because, like, if you don't understand what Paul meant when he wrote this, what the original writer of the text wrote, then you're probably going to misinterpret what he's saying. You can't just put whatever interpretation you want on what this book says. It has to be consistent with what Paul or whoever the writer of Scripture meant and with what God meant. So you've got to learn some skills in doing that. So avail yourself of those things. Feelings are very bad interpreters of Scripture. The Holy Spirit normally works by illuminating the Word of God to your mind and then moving you to apply it to your life. So, have multiple ways of taking in the Word. Don't just read it. That's one. You can read it, but don't just read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. And listen to it. Listen to it. You could, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to listen to Scripture now. So the more you soak your mind in the Word of God, the more you're going to find yourself thinking with the mind of Christ. Fourth and final application, 
Prayer is indispensable to reading the Bible supernaturally. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. And he says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I would say that's kind of a summary of what we just looked at in 1 Corinthians. And then he goes on and says this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which, he was, has, he, to which he has called you. And then he goes on to talk about all that, that's contained in that hope. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So the Holy, he prays that God, through his spirit, will enlighten the eyes of their hearts so that they can understand. So we need to pray as we read, as we study, as we meditate. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will turn the lights on for us. All right. Now, next week, Dave is going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in prayer, so I'm not going to trample any more on what he's going to say next week. All right, so what is this hidden wisdom from God that we've talked about? It's nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ, and all it flows out from that all the way to glory. And how is it revealed to us? Well, through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And how can we know it? By being spiritual people equipped to discern spiritual things. And we need to be in this book a lot to have that kind of mind. So if we're going to be people who bring healing to the church and witness to the culture, we need to be spirit-taught, Bible-saturated people. Let's pray. Father, here at the end of this year, end of last year, beginning of a new year, we acknowledge last year was hard. It was hard in our culture. It was hard in our nation. It was hard in the whole world. And it was hard in our church. But as we begin a new year, I pray that you would work in us a fresh hunger and thirst for your word, a fresh desire to dig deep into it, a fresh desire to orient our entire lives around what it says, to correctly understand it and apply it and have it transform us into the image of Christ. So, Lord, would you move the hearts of this people here this morning and those watching online to say, this year I want the Bible to to do more transformation in me to dig deeper into my heart, to know me more, that the Spirit would reveal more to me. I have the mind of Christ, and I want that Spirit to reveal more and more of the glory of Christ to me. So, Father, do that in the hearts of your people here today and throughout the course of this year. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church 
spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.